week by week from the pick of new material, from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you suspense. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another of our 75th anniversary of suspense presentations. Tonight we have three episodes. The first one I've been waiting to present to you for years and years. I've just never had a chance to, really. So 60 years ago this week, actor DeForest Kelly appeared on Suspense. And DeForest Kelly is, of course, best known as playing Dr. McCoy on Star Trek. This, as far as I can tell, is his only surviving performance in old-time radio. It might be his only performance ever in old-time radio. Now, supposedly when he was a teenager just breaking into acting, he did do some local radio. But as far as national radio goes, this is the only program I can find that he was ever in. And a lot of other people have searched, too, and they haven't found any others. It's interesting because they present it in this episode as though he's a brand new performer coming in, that they've found this new talent. But he'd been kicking around in movies and in television for about a decade. He was on, before this ever appeared, he was on an episode of Gunsmoke. He was on uh, a lot of different television programs... He was also on Cavalcade of America, but not the radio version, the television version. He was in an episode of that. He was in uh, a slew of movies, not great huge movies. Some of them were pretty well received, though, uh, throughout the 40s. I think the first thing he did was in 44, and then a lot from, say, 46 through 57, You know, he did a decent amount of of movies and television. And really, his acting career would really pick up after this suspense episode in that uh, he had to wait until a lot of um, westerns were on TV. And westerns became the big thing in about 57, 58, 59 time frame. And so he would be one of the main heavies that would come on and play the bad guy in a number of shows he was on Bonanza quite a few times he was on just basically any of the westerns you can think of he was definitely in that western and then his big breakthrough performance of course came when he was offered doing Dr. McCoy on Star Trek so it's neat that I can present this to you Um, One more little tidbit that I found out that I thought was interesting is he was on at least three different versions of OK Corral and all three versions he played different characters. Sometimes on one side, sometimes on the Wyatt Earp side, sometimes on the Clanton side. Anyway, um, he was on one that was a live version for television. He was on another version that was, of course, uh, the famous movie, um... OK Corral with 
Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, and in that he played Morgan Earp, and then he was also in the Star Trek, um, what was it called, The Spectre of the Gun, and in that he played uh, neither an Earp nor a Clanton, but someone that worked was with the Clantons. I can't remember the character's name, actually. And then, uh, so that's just kind of neat that he was able to perform in that all these different ways. Uh, But without further ado, here we're going to be bringing you uh, DeForest Kelly in The Flesh Peddler, followed by Quiet Desperation from 10 years earlier, 70 years ago this week. And then we'll finish it out with the 1962 episode of suspense that I think you might like as well. So enjoy all three episodes and spend a little more time with DeForest Kelly, which is pretty cool. Oh, also on this episode, Dawes Butler is also in it, her famous voice talent. Anyway, enjoy. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. One of the greatest pleasures we find in this business of keeping you in suspense is the discovery of new talent and of unusual story twists. In what you're about to hear, we think we have combined both. The twist, you'll never guess it, no matter how familiar you are with that mystical literary device, the ventriloquist dummy. And the new talent, two young men, Bob Jorn, whose first radio play this is, and DeForest Kelly, a bright new luminary in the Hollywood firmament. Put them all together, and you have a strange half hour ahead. Listen. Listen, then, as DeForest Kelly stars in Flesh Peddler, which begins in exactly one minute. It took mighty men to conquer mighty America, and the men set before themselves even mightier heroes, some real, some not. For instance, there was the legendary keelboatman, Mike Fink. Let Mike tell you about himself. I'm a salt river roarer. I'm a ring-tailed squealer. I'm a regular screamer from the old Mississippi. Whoop! I'm the very infant that refused his milk before its eyes was open and called out for a bottle of old rye. I love the women, and I'm chock full of fight. I'm half wild horse and half cockeyed alligator. I can hit like fourth-proof lightning, and every lick I make in the woods lets in an acre of sunshine. I can outrun, outjump, outshoot, outbrag, outdrink, and outfight any man from Pittsburgh to New Orleans and back again to St. Louis. Come on, you flatters, you bodgers, you milk-white mechanics, and see how tough I am to chaw. I ain't had a fight for two days, and I'm spiling for exercise. Cock-a-doodle-doo! <laughs> Folklore belongs to every nation's legendary past, and I guess we Americans have our share of some tall ones. And now... Mr. DeForest Kelly in Flesh Peddler, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. I'm an agent, a booking agent. 
flesh peddlers, we are sometimes unkindly called. But I don't peddle flesh. I sell talent. Singers, musicians, nightclub acts. And I'm pretty good at it. I've got an instinct for talent. When I find a new act that's really got it, I go after it until it's mine. Only the ventriloquist team of Wilson and Oliver. I wish I'd never heard of them. Then I could sleep better nights. My wife and I were vacationing in the Catskills last summer, and the night before we were due back in New York, a carnival pulled into town. Now, I don't want to sound like a snob, but to me, the carnival is the lowest form of show business. I hate them. But my wife, Gloria, loves them. Since I love Gloria, we went to the carnival. Pete, isn't it exciting? It's just cheap noise. Oh, I wish it had come to town sooner. I wish it hadn't come till tomorrow. Oh, come on, Pete. You might even find some new talent. Here? Why not? The freaks are for sideshows, honey, not class spots. You never can tell. A bearded lady might go great at the coca. Hey, hey, I can hey, tell. Yeah, folks, right here for the wonder of the midway. Hey, the one and only Alexander Wilson and his lovable little dummy pal, Oliver. Hey, you've seen Ben Philippus before, you say. Uh-huh. Hey, but you've never seen anything to equal Wilson. The remarkable Wilson and Oliver. Hey, don't pass us by, friends. Pete, let's go in. Oh, ventriloquist, a dime a dozen. Come on, I want to see him. Honey, you've seen a hundred just like him. Well, maybe he's one in a hundred. All right, all right. We pushed through into the small tent and took our places on the hard, uncomfortable benches. Wilson was already seated on the platform, a typical childishly dressed dummy on his lap. He was a man in his fifties, I'd say, with the saddest face I've seen in 15 years of show business. When the people were in, he suddenly sprang the dummy to life. Shut the doors, shut the doors. All present accounted for, Mr. Wilson. You're sure, Oliver? Sure. But then say hello to the people. Hello to the people. Oh, now, come, Oliver. You can do better than that. I can? Yes. Well, you ought to know. (laughs) (laughs) The routine was awful. Dull, time-worn. But for some reason, this Wilson fascinated me. He had a talent all right. His handling of the dummy was amazingly accurate. As the act went on, I began to think that Wilson was even better than the barker said he was. And he was going over with the house. Wilson had Oliver sing while he himself smoked a cigarette. After a few more gag routines and a couple of neat tricks, the performance was over, and I knew I had to sign the act. I parked Glory on the merry-go-round and then went looking for Wilson. I walked back of the midway through the maze of painted trailers that were home to carny people. Suddenly the door to one of them flew open and a woman stepped out, a neatly trimmed beard covering her chin. What do you want? I'm looking for Alexander Wilson. Wilson? Why? I'm a talent agent from New York. I'd like to talk to him. Agent? Yes, Peter Harris, and you're... Bernice, it's on the posters. Oh, yes, of course, Bernice. What do you want with Alexander Wilson? I told you I... Who is it, Bernice? Talent agent. Never mind, go back in. Uh, uh, agent? I'm looking for Mr. Wilson. Oh, uh, well, I'm Arthur. Uh, You caught my knife act. You you know, I could pin a fly to a penny of 40 feet. Don't mind him, flesh peddler. Go away. Go home. Agents are no good for us. 
Leave Wilson alone. And, and you know, uh, like I could put out a candle flame w with a penknife at 30 feet, Agent Man. Arthur, and go back in. Uh, maybe he could sell my act. Go in. All right. Uh, Wilson's in trailer 17, Agent Man. Hey, if you ever need a, a good Shut up, knife, Arthur. George. Shut up. Get in there. Forget what he said. Arthur is... Well, he isn't quite bright. You know what I mean? Yeah. What's so wrong about seeing Wilson? There are plenty of acts like his. You don't need him. Well, you've got my curiosity going now, Bernice. I hadn't intended that. But forget your curiosity. And go home. Now. Why? Believe me, flesh peddler, you will thank me for this advice someday. Which is trailer 17? I couldn't see why Bernice was so huffy. It was none of her business anyway. I roamed through the trailers with my cigarette lighter held high, looking for number 17. Finally, I found it. A small aluminum antique set apart from the rest, with a pre-war Chevy attached to it. The trailer was completely dark. Mr. Wilson. What is it? I'm Peter Harris. I'd like to talk to you. What do you want? Well, I'm an agent, Mr. Wilson. I'd like to see you. Just a minute. Yes? I just caught your act, Mr. Wilson. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I'd like to do business with you. Do business? Here's my card. My office places acts on all four networks and all the principal nightclubs. I'm afraid it's out of the question. I, I never play nightclubs. But... Yes, I, I never play nightclubs, Mr. Harris. Well, could I come in for a moment, explain my setup? Maybe when you... No, forgive me for appearing short, but I... I'm not interested in any offer you have to make. To begin with, I can get you 200 a week. Oh, excuse me. 250? No, I'm very tired, if you'll pardon me. Okay, Mr. Wilson. But will you tell me why you want to stay with a two-bit freak show when you could make a small fortune working with me? No. No, I'm afraid I can't tell you. Good night. I suppose I should have forgotten all about it, but I'm not used to the brush off. Like I say, when I see an act I want, I go after it until I get it. And then there was something about Wilson's reluctance that wasn't somehow on the level. As I walked back toward the bright lights and the noise of the midway, a figure stepped from behind one of the darkened trailers. So you saw him? Oh, Bernice. Yes, I saw him. And are you satisfied? Not at all. Just more curious. Exactly. Only fools push their noses into other people's business, flesh peddler. Um, Harris is the name. And only fools get themselves and other people into trouble. Trouble? All I wanted was to offer him a nice fat job, two fifty a week, and he slammed the door in my face. Alexander Wilson cannot leave this carnival. Why? You don't know, Mr. Harris, and you're not going to know. Know what? Stop asking foolish questions. Your curiosity can do a great deal of harm. Bernice, where does the carnival go from here? Really, Mr. Harris, you don't expect me to... Look, I can ask any one of the barkers or set-up men. Ask them, then. All right, I will. But remember, Flesh Peddler, if you follow us to Poughkeepsie... Uh, Poughkeepsie? Very well, now you know. But if you follow us and try to see Wilson again, you are a fool. In just a moment, we continue with... Suspense. 
One of the more colorful lumberjacks of the Midwest was a lad named Whiskey Jack, sort of fellow who could single-handed lick an entire logging crew or swim one of the great lakes with one hand tied behind his back. But as in all heroes' lives, there came a tender moment. As legend recalls, Whiskey Jack was not much for learning, certainly couldn't write his name. It was always the big X that he made on any slip of paper. And one day he came in quiet like, a little subdued. And when they gave him his pay envelope, he signed for it with great deliberation. The clerk looked, stopped, and called out, Hey, Jack, why the two X's? Whiskey Jack replied, Why, son, I have just met me a lovely young lady in the next river town, and we was hitched. So I thought it only proper and fitting that a married man should change his name. <laughs> Folklore belongs to every nation's legendary past, and I guess we Americans have some good ones. And now... We continue with the second act of Flesh Peddler, starring Mr. DeForest Kelly. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Laura and I drove back to Manhattan the next morning. And two days later, I hopped a Poughkeepsie local out of Grand Central. The more I thought about Wilson, the more of a challenge he became. I wanted him for my list, but more than that, I wanted to find out what was behind Bernice's strange attitude. Now I wish I'd forgotten about the whole thing. In Poughkeepsie, I checked into a hotel, took a cab to the carnival grounds at the edge of town. It was late afternoon as I pulled up in front of the gaudy tents and booths, waiting for the evening crowds. I made my way through the cluttered midway, looking for Wilson's aluminum trailer and hoping I wouldn't run into Bernice. Hello, uh, agent man. Uh, hey, hey, agent man. Uh, hello. Hello. Uh, remember me, uh, Arthur the knife thrower? I can pin a fly to a penny. Yes, I, I remember you. And you've uh, come for me? What's that? You, you come all this way to get me for your agency? Well, no, I'm afraid not. Oh. Uh, well, that's all right. I mean, you know, like, I've been giving it a lot of thought, and uh, I don't think I could go with you anyway. <laughs> I see. So I, I couldn't leave Bernice in the carnival. Uh, my sister uh, says carny folk should stay with carny folk. Your sister? Bernice. Oh. Arthur, why is Bernice so... so close-mouthed about Mr. Wilson? She acts as though she's afraid of him. Uh, well, us carny folks uh, stick together, see? Like, we, we don't like other people sticking their noses into our business. Bernice said that? Yes. Arthur, where's Mr. Wilson's trailer? I don't know. Oh, come now, Arthur. Uh, Bernice says, you know... Uh, I know. Bernice says too much. I, I, I don't know anything, Agent Man. Well, I have to go practice my knife throwing now. I got to practice every day, you know, you know. Well, it was clear Bernice had given Arthur his instructions, and no thanks to him, I finally found Wilson's trailer set off from the rest. Mr. Wilson? Mr. Wilson! The door to the trailer was unlocked, and it swung open at my knock. Wilson obviously wasn't there, but I didn't think he'd mind if I went in and waited. The inside of the trailer was dim and musty. I left the door open to let in what little sunlight the day had left and sat in the lone chair in front of the makeup table. 
I was just about to reach for a cigarette when I had the feeling that I wasn't alone. I turned slowly in the chair and the back of my neck began to crawl. There on a shabby army cot was Wilson's dummy, propped up against the wall. The steady, unchanging expression of its face with the staring eyes and painted smile ran back at me. It was weird and uncomfortable to be so close to this lifeless thing, unmoving, wooden, that seemed so real and alive on the platform in the tent. I tried to ignore it, but I couldn't. I looked away, but I could still feel it there, grinning at me in the early evening dimness. When I could stand it no longer, I got up and walked out of the trailer and bumped right into Bernice. What did I tell you, flesh peddler? Bernice, I... What were you doing in there? Waiting for Wilson. What did I tell you? Now look, Bernice, I don't like you or anyone else telling me what I can or can't do. I want to see Wilson again. I'm waiting here. Come with me, please. I must talk to you privately in my trailer. Sit down. Well, what's on your mind, Bernice? I didn't really think you'd follow us. I told you I'm not easily discouraged. Mr. Harris, I must warn you again to leave now without seeing Wilson. I don't think you understand me. I'm used to getting what I go after. Mr. Harris. I intend to see Wilson to try to talk him into signing a contract. And you've said so far, all that you've said is go away. Can you give me a good reason for not seeing him? Okay, then why did you insist on dragging me in here? Mr. Harris, can you assure me your interest in Wilson does not go beyond signing him as a client? What do you mean? Your interest in Wilson wouldn't by chance be in his past, his private life, and not in his professional talent. I never heard of him until I caught his act three days ago. Mr. Harris, I'd hoped I wouldn't have to tell you this. I didn't realize you were so stubborn, but... Yes? Well... Alexander Wilson lost his mind many years ago. That doesn't disturb you. It might, if I believed you, Bernice. What? I don't think Wilson's nuts. Apparently something's bothering him. Something big, maybe, but it's not insanity. I suppose you know Wilson better than I do. I didn't say that. But a man in my business meets every kind of person there is. The cheats, the phonies, the right guys, the bums. So? So you develop an instinct about people. And my instinct tells me Wilson is not insane. You'll have to try something better to scare me off. Mr. Harris, Wilson thinks he's a murderer. You are trying to scare me, aren't you? If that's necessary to protect you and us, yes. You think he might murder me, too? I don't mean that. Actually, he never murdered anyone. Look, Bernice, you don't make sense. Don't you understand? No. I said Alexander Wilson thinks he is a murderer. He thinks he murdered a woman a long time ago. He's lived with this thought for years, nourished it, until he really believes it. It's driven him out of his mind. Bernice, do you expect me to believe a cockamamie story like that? It's the truth. So don't you see? The only place for him is here, in the carnival, with his own kind. We understand Well, hasn't anyone tried to help him to make him realize that... He is beyond that now. But with us, he's all right. Outsiders disturb him. You haven't scared me off, Bernice. You've got to stay away from him. Why? If anything you've told me is true, it's only half the truth. It's enough for you to know. From you, maybe. Perhaps Wilson will tell me the rest. I've warned you. I will not warn you again. Oh, Bernice. 
Oh, hello again, Agent Man. Hi, Arthur. How's your throwing arm? Well, uh... Come in, Arthur. Mr. Harris is just leaving. Yes. So long, Bernice. Goodbye, Mr. Harris. When the trailer door closed behind me, I guessed Bernice would start talking her fury out on Arthur. So I moved around to the small window in the back of the trailer to see if I could learn anything more. I don't care. I don't even want you to say hello to him. Nothing. Understand? Well, you know, uh, just saying hello uh, don't hurt, does it, Bernice? I don't want you to open your mouth in front of that man even to yawn. I had to lie to him to get him away from here. And I don't want you saying anything to bring him back. Uh, uh, all right, Bernice. Just pray he goes back to his flesh peddling in New York on that first train. Just as I thought, Bernice had lied to me. I was determined to get to the bottom of this double talk about Wilson more than ever. This had become more important to me than signing him to the usual seven-year management contract. When I got back to Wilson's trailer, there was a light inside. Who's there? It's Peter Harris again. Who? Peter Harris. I spoke to you a few days ago and... What do you want? I want to talk to you, Mr. Wilson. Go away. But I've come all the way from New York. I must ask you to leave at once. Look, Mr. Wilson, I'm not a detective. All I wanted when I first met you was to book you into the big time. But now there's something more. I think you need help. You need help badly. No, you're mistaken. Can I come in and talk to you? Oh, good heavens, no. Well, how about having a drink with me before the show? You look like you could use one. Please, now, leave me alone. Wilson. Wilson, don't you see what these people are doing to you? For some reason, you're a haunted man. And this carnival is the worst place in the world for Leave me now. Leave me, please. These people are all the help I need. Leave me alone. I'll be at the hotel overnight. If you change your mind, Wilson, call me. Now I was mad. If he wanted to rot there, go on with the carnival until it wasted away, it was no business of mine. I had a few drinks in my room at the hotel. Phone Gloria that I'd be home the next day. Went to bed. Yes? Mr. Harris? Wilson. Can you meet me right away? Right, right away? What time is it? Well, I don't know. It's after midnight. It's 1, 1.30. Well, I... Please, please. I must talk to you. Can you meet me? Sure. Okay, where are you calling from? Uh, an all-night drugstore. Well, where is it? Wait. Wait. Not here. Meet me at my trailer. Okay. It took me longer to wake the cab driver in front of the hotel than it did to get to the carnival grounds. I told the cab to wait and made my way through the darkened tents and trailers to number 17. Come in. What's the matter? Uh, Mr. Harris, I've changed my mind. I I want to leave with you tonight. But tonight? Well, what's the... Mr. What? Harris, you're the first person outside of the carnival I've talked to in more than two years. You're the first person I've had the courage to approach... Go on. I trust you, Mr. Harris. 
I can't see why, but I know you'll believe me and help me. I can't live like this anymore. Sure, sure. Now, just take it. No, no, no. Listen to me. Two years ago, I killed a woman. Beautiful woman. I loved her more than I've ever loved anything or anyone in my life. When I tried to tell her how much I loved her, she, she laughed at me. I couldn't stand that laugh. I understand, Wilson. But that isn't exactly justification see, for murder. she and her son, uh, she was divorced, were working in this very carnival when I first saw her back in my hometown in Illinois. Yes. I fell in love. Oh, you can call me a rube, anything, but I was in love. I quit my job and followed the carnival for months. That's how much I loved her. And she laughed at me. So I shot her one night. And then I wanted to die, too. And when I saw her lying there at my feet, I, I wanted them to hang me, but they laughed at me. They laughed at the you? The law, the police, they didn't believe I'd done anything. They wouldn't let me give myself up. Where did you get this crazy idea, Wilson? It isn't a crazy idea. It's the truth. Look, lots of people get lots of funny ideas. They think about something they want to do. And they think about it so much that they, they really believe they've done it. It was real from the beginning. I killed her. I did. But there was no evidence against me. Listen, Wilson, you're not making sense. You listen. He destroyed every bit of evidence. So he could punish me himself. The police couldn't arrest or even suspect me. Who destroyed what evidence, Wilson? Her son, Oliver. Oliver? Yes, Mr. Harris. He's referring to me. A trick? No. Wilson was too upset to be tricking me. I wheeled at the sound of his voice, and there in the doorway stood Wilson's dummy, Oliver, a small but capable pistol in his hand. You are just as curious as Bernice said you were, Mr. Harris. Oliver. Bernice told me a lot about you. You had to know. And now you do. No, you're not... You shocked to learn I'm a midget. I must admit you gave me quite a start when you made yourself at home in the trailer this afternoon. But that was... That was me, Mr. Harris. Fortunately, I was already made up for the evening performance. Mr. Harris hasn't done anything, Oliver. Let him go. That depends on you. You see, Mr. Harris, Wilson is no ventriloquist. I guess that's obvious now. It is. Wilson murdered my mother, and I protected him from the police. But why? Why? So the law couldn't punish him. What satisfaction would there have been for me if they'd just hanged him? He'd been dead in an instant. Is that enough punishment for a man who has murdered your mother? No. He deserved more. And I've given it to him. I've punished Alexander Wilson for years. Yeah, that's right, Mr. Harris. He, he's held this over my head ever since. Sitting on my lap at every performance, reminding me night and day. Well, well, I've had as much as I can stand. So go ahead, Oliver. Shoot! Shoot! Oliver, be sensible. If you pull that trigger there, here. They? Bernice and Arthur and everyone else? Bernice already knows, and now I don't care if the others do, too. For heaven's sake, shoot me. Get it over with. Shoot me, you monster. Shoot me. With horror frozen on his face, Wilson slid to the floor, dead. Then Oliver turned on me, the pupils of his eyes tiny with madness and his frail little body trembling. I'm afraid this is one act you can't book, Mr. Harris. Oliver, 
You wanted to know everything. Oliver, now wait, wait. I'm really sorry for your sake. He asked me to let you go, but under the circumstances. No. no. I'm sorry, Mr. Hill. It flashed by my head and landed quivering in Oliver's chest. A long, gleaming knife blade. And there was Arthur in the doorway of the trailer with Bernice. His face like stone, watching Oliver crumple the little distance to the floor. Slowly, the faces of the others appeared in the doorway, silent. The terror I was holding back was a physical pain. I walked to the door and stood looking down at the little body lying awkwardly like a dummy now. A lifeless thing, unmoving, staring, even with the traces of a painted smile grinning up at me. This couldn't have gone on any longer, I suppose. The police will come now, and at last there'll be an end to it. Go home, flesh peddler, and forget all about us. I went home, but I haven't forgotten, and I'm afraid I never will. Suspense. In which DeForest Kelly starred in William N. Robeson's production of Flesh Peddler, written by Robert Duran. Suspense has been brought to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Suspense. Among wine stewards, the men who are responsible for the wine selections in the cellars of famous hotels and restaurants, the choice is C-R-E-S-T-A, B-L-A-N-C-A, Cresta, Blanca, Cresta Blanca. 
Yes, with professional hosts who know how to please the palates of America's most discriminating guests, Cresta Blanca California wines richly bespeak gracious hospitality. So compliment your guests by serving the best. For distinguished entertaining, pour magnificent Cresta Blanca sherry, port, muscatel, or any Cresta Blanca wine. From the finest of the vines, it's Cresta Blanca wine. Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine Company, Livermore, California. And now, Shenley brings you Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills. Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines for your everyday enjoyment. Tonight, Roma Wines of Fresno, California, bring you Mr. Walter Abel in Quiet Desperation, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Shenley by William Spear. During my lunch hour one day. Funny, I can't even remember the name of the book. Anyway, the sentence was, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I couldn't seem to get past that sentence, quiet desperation. That was me the author was talking about, Homer Biglow. And suddenly I thought, why should I go on like that? I was desperate, okay, but why should I be quiet? Why shouldn't I do something about it? Get myself out of the rut. All I needed was the right break. It came a lot sooner than I expected. One day, just before my vacation, I happened to overhear Mr. Pearson, he's president of the bank, talking to one of the bank's directors, Corbin Vandergriff. Usually their conversation is about debentures or first mortgages or government issues. That stuff doesn't interest me. Today, there was talk. their talk was a horse of another color. It was a hot day, and the door of the boss's office was open. They didn't even know I was alive. Well, I understand she's no great beauty, but it's just as well she doesn't attract too much attention going through customs at both ends. You mean to say, Corbin, that a young girl is willing to take the risk of violating her country's currency control? Evidently. Of course, she feels exactly as the father does. That they should be free over there to spend their own money wherever they choose. Right. Old Vale would break every law they've written here just for the satisfaction of knowing he's outwitted them. Mm-hmm. And Hester probably feel the same way about it. Well, then he'll probably get quite a kick out of slipping 20,000 pounds out of the country. Uh, not pounds, John. But they might as well be. They're just about as negotiable as cold cash. But when that girl turns them over to me, I can walk into any dealer in the city and get full market value in ten minutes. And I intend to do it for them. I'm in complete sympathy. No government on earth could tell me where and when and how to spend my own money. Uh, once she gets the money, what is she going to do with it? Oh, I don't know, and I don't care. My guess is that she's going to do some shrewd buying of highly scarce products for a shipment back abroad. Leave it a veil to find a profitable deal. <laughs> when is she arriving? Monday, young Elizabeth. I've engaged a suite for her at the ambassador. I wrote them that I'd meet her at the boat, take her to her hotel, get the uh, negotiables and exchange them for her. That afternoon, she can throw the dollars out of the window for all that matters to me. My duty will be over. Well, aren't you going to entertain her while she's here? See hmm? that she has a good time? Entertain her? Sure. Oh, I should say not. I don't even know the girl. Besides, I'm a little old for that sort of thing. Oh, Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I wondered what Mr. Pearson would say if any of us employees at the bank were to play fast and loose with the law the way Corbin Vandergriff and that snooty dame Hester Vale were doing. He wouldn't be quite so sympathetic and understanding. You can bet your bottom dollar on that. That kind of skullduggery was labeled strictly for the rich. 
I should have put the whole thing out of my mind, but somehow I couldn't. 20,000 pounds. $80,000 in American money. I stood there outside Mr. Pearson's office. I was shaken out of my quiet desperation somehow. I just stood there, dreaming about romance and adventure that you could buy with money. Well, Homer, you all set for your vacation? Oh, yes, yes, sir. Leaving Friday for good old Eel River. My 13th year up there. Well, well, I envy you. I won't be going up until September. Well, then you'll be fishing up at Eel River again this summer, too. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. I wouldn't miss it for anything. I wrote Emil and told him to expect me. Say, we'll be quite a party this year, five of us. Uh, by the way, did I tell you about the trout I caught last year? Yes. It weighed close The to bank president and, and his lowly employee both went to the same place for their vacation. But what a difference. When he went out fishing, he had two guides per man with him. To pack and to carry, to paddle and to cook, to set up camp, to do everything that needed doing. Whereas I had to do well, everything for myself and by myself. Have a good time, Homer. I'll see you when you return. I'll say goodbye now, son. I won't be back anymore today. Goodbye, sir, and thank you. I had my lunch that day as usual. In the boardroom, Jenny, Mr. Pearson's secretary, had left the door to his office open so that if the phone should ring, I could take the message while she was out. The phone did ring, and it was Corbin Vandergrift. <coughs> Who is this? This is Homer Biglow, Mr. Vandergrift. Uh, oh, yes, Homer. Excuse me. I, uh, make sure uh, to give this message to Mr. Pearson. I'm laid up here in the country with a cold. Won't be able to get in the city for that appointment on Monday. Mr. Pearson knows about it. <coughs> I say Mr. Pearson knows about it. Ask him to meet Miss Vale at the boat for me and see to it that she's settled at the hotel. Tell him not to expect me back in the city until next Wednesday at the earliest. Yes, sir. Uh, tell him I'll uh, take care of that financial matter for Miss Vale when I get in. It can wait until Wednesday. Yes, sir. And tell him not to bother to call me. I'm going to spend this week in bed. I, I don't want to be disturbed. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Homer. So Mr. Vandergrift was indisposed. Too bad. And now the girl would have to be met by a substitute, a stranger. Well, she didn't know either Vandergrift or Pearson from a hole in the ground. So what did it matter? And if it came to that, why did the substitute have to be Mr. Pearson? Why couldn't it be me? For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Walter Abel in Quiet Desperation. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is being brought to you by Roma. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines, America's largest selling wines. Mark Twain once said, Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, that may have been true in Mark Twain's time, but today it's a different story. Today, there's an easy way to beat the heat. Just half fill a glass with better-tasting Roma wine, such as rich Roma Tokay, fruity Roma Zinfandel, or mellow Roma Claret. Add ice, fill up with soda, sweeten to taste, and garnish with fragrant mint or fruit slices. Then... Lean back and enjoy Roma Wine and Soda, America's smartest, coolest, 
summer drink. I'm sure you'll agree that Roma wine and soda, so delicious, so refreshing, so cool to come home to, is the perfect warm weather thirst quencher. Perfect for summer entertaining. So inexpensive, too. It's a hot idea to treat your family and friends to cold, refreshing Roma wine and soda made with better-tasting Roma wines. America's favorite wines. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Walter Abel as Homer Biglow, with Kathy Lewis as Hester Vale in Quiet Desperation, a play well calculated to keep you in suspense. My days of quiet desperation were over. Anyone taking a real close look at me that Friday wouldn't have been sure I had a fever. My face felt hot, and every now and then... I had a fit of trembling, but evening finally came. I gulped down some food at the cafeteria, picked up my bags at home, and went to the station. The next day, I was saying hello to Emil on the platform of the Eel River Station. Ah, hello, Omer. Comment ça va? Hello, Emil. Glad to see you again. <laughs> How is my bon ami, Mr. Pearson? Huh? Fine. He sends his regards. How's the fishing? Oh, magnifique. The best ever, eh? <laughs> Many others on the river, Emil? Not the one. The fish, they are hungry like anything, and not the one to give them small fly to eat. Now you come, Omer, and they will be all for you. That's fine. I'll get started right out. Is everything all set? Oh, we to cry. Everything is ready, eh? <laughs> Cut. In half an hour, I was at the camp on the shore of Eel River. I had lunch, changed my clothes, put my city clothes into my pack instead of into my suitcase, which I was going to leave in camp. And by three o'clock, I was a good eight miles up Eagle River. By four, I had hidden my canoe and equipment in some bushes along the bank. And, dressed again in city clothes, was walking slowly through the woods toward Loudon's Corner three miles away. It was a local stop on the railroad just below Eel River. The train south was due in at nine that night. I had plenty of time to catch it and make the transfer to Boston for the night train to New York. At the Boston station, I bought a cheap suitcase and a couple of shirts. And when the train dropped me at Grand Central early Sunday morning... I went straight to the 49th Street Hotel, which was just a couple of blocks from the Ambassador. I scrawled the name Henry Smith in the register and was shown to my room. I had a whole day and a night to wait, and for once, with all that time on my hands, I didn't read a book. Excuse me, where could I find Miss Vale, one of the passengers? What? What name? Hester Vale. Vale? Well, look over there by the fees. If you hadn't gone through, she's probably there. Thank you. That's okay. Show sure, help me. I'm going to call Miss Vale? Miss Vale? Oh, yeah. oh, good morning, Miss Vale. I'm... You're Mr. Vandercliffe. That's right. So good of you to come. My father promised you'd meet me. How is your father? Very well, thank you. Still growling about Europe's ruin. It's been a beastly nuisance, this waiting. Bye. Very warm in America. Is there anything I can do to help? Thank you. That chap finally finished mucking about my boxes. You think I was an adventurous, smuggling something priceless into your country, wouldn't you? <laughs> Had nothing to declare, you know. Came with empty trunks. Expect to fill them up while I'm here. Can't buy a thing in Europe, you know. Europe's a dreadful nightmare. Yes, so I understand. Father wrote you all about it, did he? Yes. Foolish of him to write. The mail might have been opened. Oh, no. After all, the war's over. Yes, it. Well, shall I take you to your hotel? You probably want to rest. Rest? Not at all. I'm scooting out to the shops right off. You 
have enough money for shopping? They allowed me a hundred pounds. I still have most of it. That'll do for a starter. If they'd only known about, you know. Yes, if you if you care to turn the uh, uh, contraband over, I could see about converting it into dollars for you. Contraband, spies, and all that sort of thing. I describe it exactly. It's very nice. Not now. I'll dig them out at the hotel. All right. Is there anything you'd like to do this evening? Oh dear. I don't want to impose on your time. You're not imposing. It's a pleasure. But I'd like to see you play. One of your bright American musicals, if possible. I think that can be arranged. Nice. Suppose I call for you at seven. We can have dinner and then go to the theater. That's splendid. Spicely kind of you. No, forget it. I, I haven't seen a musical myself. Well, not for a long time, anyway. I took her to her suite at the Ambassador. And I went back to my room to think over my plan. It was almost too simple. As soon as she turned the securities over to me, I'd take them to a broker and collect. Then I'd catch the night train back to Loudon's Corner, then through the woods to Eel River. By tomorrow afternoon, I'd be in my canoe again as if nothing had happened. A few days after that, the canoe would come drifting down river wrong side up, and my stuff would be found floating in a quiet backwater. Under another name, I'd go out west. With $80,000, I'd never have to go back to that old life of quiet desperation. No, sir, I was through with that forever. As for the man who posed as Corbin Vandergrift, <laughs> he'd never be found. And no one would ever connect him with the Homer Biglow who was drowned on a fishing trip in the swift waters of Eel River 250 miles away. Good evening, Miss Vale. Hello, right on time. How is the shopping? I say it left me quite speechless. I can't wait until I can really go on a spree. <clears throat> are we ready? Oh, you are? Quite. Oh, dear. Can you hold this key for me? There should be no room in my bag for it. Sure, I'll keep it in my pocket for you. Thank you. I picked a quiet little restaurant where I was sure I wouldn't meet anyone who knew me. The theater was going to be an ordeal, all those people, but that couldn't be helped. I had to play my part until she handed over those securities. I couldn't afford to look too anxious about them either, but I needn't have worried. Well? While we were waiting for the dessert, she opened her bag and pulled out a package of about a dozen small envelopes, different sizes and different shapes. Here you are, Miss Vanderbilt. Take good care of them. Uh, are these? They are. I put them in my inside pocket. All the way down Broadway in the taxi, I felt them. The envelopes were too small, it seemed to me, to hold securities. Maybe if they were folded over. But even then, they would have to be bulkier than they were. I had to look into those envelopes and know if the securities were really there. But I had no chance, and it wasn't until the taxi dropped us in front of the theater that I was able to make one. Well, here we are. Miss Vale, I wonder if you'd mind seeing the show alone. Oh, dear. <laughs> I don't know what did it to me, but... I've suddenly got a terrific headache. Oh, that is too bad. Oh, I'll be, it'll be all right. I just thought the music and the excitement wouldn't help much. No, I should think not. Suppose you take me back to the hotel, then you can go right home. But wouldn't you like to see the show by yourself? Well, you could, you know, and then take a taxi back to the ambassador. Yes, I suppose I could. I should hate to think a headache of mine spoiled your whole evening. Here, you take the tickets and go on in. Thank you, I will. I'm dreadfully sorry you have to miss it. Oh, I'll make up for it another time, Miss Vale. There are plenty of musicals you will want to see. You'll be sure to take something for the headache now, won't you? I will. Thanks a lot for being so considerate. <laughs> good night, Miss Vale. Have a good time. I'm sure to. Good night, Miss Vale. Back in my hotel room with shaking hands, I opened the envelopes. 
There were nothing but letters from her friends, sent to her from different parts of the world. Not a single security in any of them. Could it have been a mistake? Did she hand me the wrong package? It didn't seem possible. Maybe she suspected something was wrong and played a trick on me. I was sweating and reached for my handkerchief, and that's when I felt her hotel key still in my pocket. <gasps> I threw the package of letters into my suitcase and walked over to the ambassador two blocks away. Her key opened the door, and I was alone in her suite. I had until at least 11.30, two and a half hours. I took my time about it, making sure to put everything back exactly as I found it. I searched her baggage, the bureau drawers, the closet, every conceivable place, even under the rugs, and found exactly nothing. She had them on her then. I turned the light off and went into the bedroom to wait. Soon after 11.30, I heard the outer door open. Really, I'm terribly sorry to have caused this trouble. Mr. Vandergrift was suddenly taken with a headache, or I'm sure he wouldn't have forgotten to return my key. Oh, that's all right. It really doesn't matter. You can use this duplicate until he returns it to you. It doesn't bother, though. Oh, not at all, Miss Vale. It happens often. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Oh! Oh. oh. Mr. Vandergrift. I'm... What are you doing I'm here? I'm sorry to disturb you, oh, Miss Vale, but I had to come back. You see... You forgot to give me the securities. Securities? Yes, the securities I was to have sold for you. But, my dear man, I did give you the securities. Oh, no, there wasn't anything in the package except some letters from friends of yours. Who are you? You're not Mr. Vandergrift. Miss Vale, what my name is doesn't matter very much. By this time, it's enough for you to know that I want those securities, and I mean to get them, hand them over. You get out of here. I warn you, Miss Vale, I don't want to get nasty, but I'm not going to leave without them. Stay away from me. The securities, Miss Vale. Say not, no. Where are they? No! Well... Tell me. I don't want to hurt you. The more she struggled, the tighter I gripped her throat. Her arms beat weakly against my sides, and suddenly I got so mad at her that I... Where are they? Where are they? Tell me, where are they? My fingers tightened and strained against her soft flesh. Then suddenly, she quit struggling. And when I loosened my grip, she fell down on the floor, unconscious. Where was that purse of hers? Ah, there. I ripped it open. Nothing there but a powder compact and a lipstick and some change. Where could they be? She'd have to tell me. I'd make her. Miss Vale... Wake up. Miss Vale! She didn't move. And then I saw... She wasn't breathing anymore. I'd killed her. I never meant to kill the girl. I hadn't any idea I was choking her that hard. All I wanted was... But now I had to get away. I couldn't stay here with that limp body sprawled on the rug. But I had to be careful. I couldn't afford to make a mistake now. I tried to remember everything I'd read in detective stories. You had to be careful about fingerprints. I ran to the bathroom, grabbed a towel, and with it wiped every surface I might have touched. Then I dragged the body to the bedroom and put it on the bed. I shut the door behind me and turned the lights off in the sitting room. I listened a couple of seconds at the outer door. Everything was quiet. I ducked out and went for the stairs. The lobby was empty. I crossed over and went out into Park Avenue. Five minutes later, I was at my hotel. It was 12.30. I could still catch the one o'clock train for Boston. Fine mess I'd made. The best thing that could happen to me now... Mind you, the best thing would be to get back home to the boarding house, to the bank, to that horrible, hopeless rut I tried to get away from. That was the best I had to look forward to. The worst. I didn't even have the courage to look at that. 
But then, how could they pin it on me? If anybody had anything to worry about, it wasn't me. It was Vandergriff. He had the date with her, not I. As far as anybody knew, I didn't know any such person as Hester Vale ever existed. Vandergriff was the guy she told the desk clerk she'd given the key to. I bet the poor sap wouldn't even be able to prove an alibi for last night, midnight. Yes. Ha. Huh. I could go back to my fishing and forget the whole thing. Forget it ever happened. I was safe. Fine consolation that was, after all the beautiful plans I'd made. But at least, I was safe. In Boston, I checked the new suitcase. I could pick it up on the way home. The local dropped me at Loudon's Corner. By noon, I was sitting over my campfire, having a bite just like any other fellow out on a fishing trip. Ten days later, on a Saturday morning, I was back at Emil's camp. Uh, well, Mr. Bigelow, how was the fishing, huh? Fine, Emil, fine. Oh, oh, oh. you get nice sunburn. Uh, last the rest of the year, anyway. Did huh? I really get that, Brown? Oh, like a berry, huh? Yeah, real nice and quiet, no? I have no party fishing before September when Mr. Pearson come with the four friends. Yes, I know. He told me. Oh, he's some fisherman, Mr. Pearson. Always try for record. But you don't care for record, eh, Mr. Bigelow? You <laughs> you lead the simple, the, the quiet life. I, I guess so. But you enjoy it, no? Enjoy it? Well, I try my best. <laughs> you have uh, other hobbies, maybe, no, eh? No, no, I don't have any other hobbies except reading. Oh, uh, Mr. Pearson and me, we have the same hobby. That's uh, why we're such good friends. I didn't know that. Oh, we we great one for uh, philately, the stamp, the stamp, you know, huh? Someday I show you my collection. It feels three albums. But I have not so good collection like Mr. Pearson. But then I don't have so much money. Neither have I. Oh, you make joke. <laughs> Mr. Pearson, he's very wealthy, I know. But still, Emil can give him some stamp once in a while. And a few uh, duplicate. You do me a big favor and give them to Mr. Pearson. I make me compliment, eh? Why? Oh, sure, I'd be glad to. Ah, yeah. Now I drive you to station. Next year you come again, no? Yes, I'll come again. Well, well, Homer, you're back, eh? Did you enjoy your rest? Yes, it was fine, Mr. Pearson. Oh, good, good. I can't say we've had any enjoyment back here. Have you heard about Mr. Vandergrift? Mr. Vandergrift? No, sir. Is there something wrong? Wrong? <laughs> I'll say there is. He's been arrested for murder. He insists he's innocent, but the police have a strong case against him. Very strong. It looks bad. Bad indeed. I'm sorry, sir. Ah, uh, so are we all. It means I'll have to give up my fishing trip this summer for one thing. I can't desert dear old Bandy at such a time. I'll have to wire Emil, and I just got a letter from him telling me he had everything arranged to... Yes, he told me he was expecting you. Oh, well. Can't be helped, I guess. Oh, say, by the way, he wrote that he sent some duplicates onto me in your care. Stamps. Stamps? Mm. Oh, that's right, he did. Sorry, I forgot about them, Mr. Pearson. I must have had them at home. I'll, I'll bring them in tomorrow, sir. Well, there's no hurry, no hurry. I have no mind for them now, anyway. Well, back to work. Come on, go back. That night I looked for the stamps, but couldn't find them. How I ever managed to lose them, I'll never know. Now I'd have to explain to Mr. Pearson. No. No, I wouldn't have to explain. I still had those letters, her letters. They were from foreign countries. I'd take the stamps from those envelopes and give them to Mr. Pearson. He'd never know the difference. I knew how fussy he could get about a little thing like lost stamps. 
Rather than get him started on a lecture, I got out the package of letters, cut the stamps off, and then burned the letters and the envelopes. The next day... Uh, yes? Here are the stamps, sir. I found them at home, all right. Oh, oh well, just put them on the desk, Homer. Thank you very much. Don't mention it, Mr. Pearson. I was having my lunch later in the boardroom when Mr. Pearson came in. He had a stranger with him. A tall man with an angry face. Oh, so here you are, Homer. Yes, sir. Homer, I want you to meet Mr. Scott. How do you do? All right. Those, uh, those stamps you gave me, Homer... Are you sure you got them for me, Mew? Oh, yes, sir. Just before I left, he gave them to me for you. No, Homer. No, I just called Emile. He told me he gave you some recent French issues. Those weren't the stamps you gave me. Well, Mr. Pearson, I guess you found me out. You see, I lost the stamps Emil gave me, and I didn't want to disappoint you, so I went to a stamp dealer's and picked up a dozen odd stamps to replace them. I didn't think it would make much difference. Is that your story, Big Law? Why, what do you mean? It's true. They were very rare and valuable stamps, Homer. You must have shelled out a pretty penny for them. Oh, I don't know. Mr. Pearson feels a man in your position couldn't afford to buy stamps like those unless... Uh, unless what? Unless you didn't buy them at all, Big Loan. Unless you got them from the late Miss Hester Vale. What's the matter, Homer? Is the name familiar to you? Oh, no, no, sir. I never heard of... What makes us think so is that the stamps Miss Vale smuggled into this country were the same issues and worth exactly as much. $80,000. We're worth 80000 Could it uh, be a coincidence, Mr. Biglow? Quiet. Desperation. I've been catching up on my reading here in prison while waiting. I found another good quote. Happiness is the absence of pain. Suspense. Quiet Desperation, starring Walter Abel and presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those better tasting wines selected for your pleasure from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines. More Americans enjoy Roma Wines than any other wines because Roma Wines taste better. To create this better taste, Roma begins with natural juices gently pressed from California's choicest grapes. Then Roma Master Vintners, with ancient skill and unmatched winemaking resources, guide these luscious grape treasures unhurriedly to taste perfection. Then, these better-tasting wines are placed with mellow Roma wines of years before. And from these, the world's greatest wine reserves, Roma later selects for your pleasure. Right now... A wonderful way to discover the better taste of Roma wines is to serve Roma wine and soda, iced. For cool, lip-smacking refreshment, enjoy delicious Roma wine and soda made with your favorite Roma wine. That's Roma, America's largest selling wines. Walter Abel will soon be seen in the Hal Roach production, Fabulous Joe. Tonight's suspense play was by George and Gertrude Fass. Next Thursday, same time, 
you will hear Donald O'Connor as star of Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. In the coming weeks, Suspense will present such stars as Edmund O'Brien, John Lund, Lloyd Nolan, and many others. Make it a point to listen each Thursday to Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And now, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. In a moment, act one of Run Faster, written especially for suspense by Lois Landauer. can have all the ingredients for happiness and still want things that are wrong for him. The whole time I was in the hospital after flying in Korea, I kept telling myself how wonderful it'd be when Chris and I got married. A little white house, simple, happy life. I got my discharge and we had the house and the simple life. Too simple. The range station where I got a job was on a small emergency landing field. So I was supposed to double on tower work for emergency landings. Only there weren't any. Bill, my relief man, and my brother Dink lived with us. Dink didn't know beans about flying, but he got the same charge I did just being around it. He was over at the field the night the big fog moved in. Chris was fixing the supper I took on the midnight shift. You think two sandwiches will be enough? Sure. I'd better put in a piece of cake. You didn't eat much dinner. No, sandwiches will be enough. Well, I'll just put it in. You can't tell. You might get hungry. The sandwiches are enough. What's the matter, darling? Nothing's the matter. Is it the fog? Well, what's the fog got to do with me? I don't know. You just you just act so funny every time the weather's like no, this. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What's the matter? Hold it, hold it. Just a plane, dear. I thought he was in trouble for a minute. Oh, Bill's on duty. He'd take care. Yeah, Bill always gets him. But do I? I sit in that shack night after night, and what happens? Nothing. Is that so important? Important? You think I'm made of sawdust? <sighs> Married life getting you down, Dave. Oh, for crying out. I guess it must be pretty dull after Korea. I didn't say that. You're thinking it. All right. So I like a little excitement once in a while. Is that so terrible? No. I guess we're just different, that's all. Well, it's not that. What then? Uh, you wouldn't understand. You weren't there. 
darling. Well? Maybe if you got away from planes. Chris, I don't want to get away from planes. That job is still open in Clinton. No. We could afford to build our own house in town if you took it. What's wrong with this house? Nothing, but but we're so far away from everything. What do you mean, far? Clinton's only two hours away, and there's Bill and Dink. Dink should have young people. You've still got a few years left, Grandma. Anyway, he likes it here. Look at all the time he spends over at the field. Oh, honey, that brother of yours would like anything you did. You know that. If you'd get this flying bug out of your system, Dink would probably get over it, too. I don't want to talk about but it. But it's true, Dave. Oh, I hate to keep harping on well, it. Then don't. Are you about finished with those sandwiches? You still have half an hour. Bill overslept this morning. Yeah, but he asked me to relieve him early. He has a big date in Clinton tonight. Oh, Dave, that's not fair. Well, what's the difference? Well, of course it doesn't matter to Bill the hours he keeps. He has no wife waiting around at home. I think he's being very inconsiderate. This is the third time this month. Look, I want to get over to the airport. Do you mind? The thermos is on the sink. You can fill it. I just washed it. Oh, Dave! All right. I broke it. Is that so tragic? Oh, here it is. Yeah, I know. If we lived in town, we'd get one of the corner drugstores. In town? You wouldn't have a job where you take midnight suppers. Well, we're not in town. We're living where planes come in and go out. Do you understand? And if I have to bust a thermos bottle to get some excitement, I'll bust one every five minutes. Now, how do you like that? Before I'd gone a dozen yards, our house was a shapeless blur behind me. Then it was gone. I thought of Chris alone back there, cut off from the world. I felt like a grade-A heel for acting up like that. Well, Bill cut out as soon as I got to the shack. Dink's wheelchair was close to the radar panel as usual, but there wasn't a blip in sight as usual. Uh, something wrong? No, it's the same old stuff. Chris, huh? Yeah. Of course, she's a woman, Dave. I guess so. It's not so hot for her. Bill sure isn't any company for her when he's not on duty. He's either sleeping or out on a date. And with you sleeping days, it really isn't much of a deal for her out there. Especially with a cripple like me around to slow things up. I'm nuts. I think I'll check Mercury. Midland Radio calling L.A. Mercury Airlines. This is Midland Radio. You there, Hank? This is Mercury Airlines. You're on early, aren't you, Dave? Yeah, Bill's giving the Clinton girls a break. Hey, what's with this thick stuff? Uh, it hasn't hit out here yet, but we're expecting it. What's your ceiling? Oh, about 400 feet. It's dropping fast, though. Better watch it. Army fields west of you aren't landing anyone without zero-zero cards. Yeah? Well, maybe I'll have company. Could be. Hey, Dave, someone's coming. Well, I don't want anybody to have any tough flying, but be good having a plane land here for a change. Dave. There, hold it a minute, Hank. Kid brother's trying to say something. Oh, hi there. Can I do something for you, mister? Uh, talk to you later, Hank. Something wrong, Dink? No, no, I'll call you back. Sort of took me by surprise. I, I didn't hear your car. Wasn't none. Did you run out of gas? That's right. 
<laughs> well, walking's no fun in that mess. Have a seat. My name's Dave Cawthon. Uh, this is my brother, Dink. What's this place? This is uh, Midland Range Station, Dawson Field. I didn't see no planes. <laughs> you wouldn't see planes here on a clear night. No, we're just an emergency field. Just you two, huh? Well, real cozy, just me and my... You live here? Here in the station? No, no, my, my place is about a mile down the road. Yeah. Married? Sure am. Dink here lives with us. Yeah, we sail in that little white house tomorrow, A.M. There'll be the neatest stack of flapjacks waiting you ever saw. <laughs> you got any gas? We sure have. We have a pump in the front yard. At your house, huh? Have yeah, you got enough in your tank to get down the road a mile? Well, it don't move. Maybe it ain't gas even, but uh, don't move. Uh-huh. Wait, wait a second. Uh, let me see. What are you doing? What's that thing? This is state phone book. I'll looking for a number what here. What for? Uh, Clinton, Gables, Games, Garage. Here it is. Uh, the Clinton 25... What the shoe gonna do, huh? Well, calling a tow car for you. Uh, no need to walk all that way to the pump and back in this weather if there's something wrong with your car. No. Well, it may not... May not even be as long as I said. They usually have calls. Don't up. call nobody. See, there's no trouble. What was that number again? Let me see. Clinton Garage. Hey, what do you? G- give me that. Come on, hey. What are you? Hey, don't. Hey. Try using it. Tartan too. Now, where's that pump at? Down the road a mile, huh? Dave. It's all right, Bill's there. Uh, here's a can, mister. There's no need to ask at the house about using the pump. You just help yourself. About uh, a mile, huh? Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, In the front yard. Why should I lie to you? All right. One mile. White house. Front yard. Boy, a real sweetheart, huh? Yeah. Hello. Hello. Operator. I was talking to my wife, operator. You you cut us off. No, sir, I didn't. Well, look, will you ring her again, please? Hurry it up, please. All right. Hang up and I'll call you back. Oh. I wouldn't worry, Dave. He was just a screwball. Yeah. Uh, come on, operator. Ring. Yeah, I wish there was some way I could get home now. Well, if it was a clear night, I'd take a chance covering for you, but... I don't know the first thing about radar. Hello, Chris. Operator, your line at home is out of order. We're working on it now, sir. The trouble is at this end. Oh, that's swell. He's he's at the house with Chris. Well, how how long will it take, Operator? I do not know. Five minutes, an hour, maybe. Hard to say. Oh, yeah. Well, will you get me Sheriff Grover? Did something happen? Uh, Operator, I'd like to speak to Sheriff Grover. Do you mind? Yes, please. I've got to warn Chris about that character.
Each time I'd look at my watch, only seconds had passed. It seemed like hours. Something was happening. Hank didn't usually call me. Mercury Airlines calling Midland Radio. You there, Dave? This is Midland Radio. What's up, Hank? I want to know if you've heard from our flight uh, 535 out of L.A. Negative. Why? Are they in trouble? I don't know. They haven't reported in over an hour. Hmm, 535's not due over here. Think they're off course. Can't say. They didn't report over Downsville or Little Falls. What's his altitude? That's just it. We're not sure. He was cleared out of here at 8,000. But with the weather doing tricks out your way, he may have been trying to contact us for a change in his flight plan. Better stick close, boy. A lot of people in that thing. You reading me, Dave? Oh, I'm not going anyplace. You should have gone to Clinton with Bill. I hear they're having plenty of excitement over there. We heard some mental patient walked out of the big state hospital over there yesterday. Um, Hank, I've, I've got a call that may be your 535 now. I hope you're right, calling Dave. Midland Radio. I, I better catch it. Mercury Airlines, flight 535, calling Midland Radio. Come in, Midland. Aircraft calling Midland Radio. Repeat your identification, please. Go ahead. 535, Mercury Airlines. Do you read me, Midland? Go ahead. Midland Radio to Mercury 535. L.A. has been looking for you, buddy. What's your problem? It beats me, Pappy. Trying to get through for hours. Headed to send to 5,000. I need landing clearance quick. Estimate 15 minutes more fuel, and that is all, brother. 535 from Midland. We're reporting present weather of 200 feet overcast. Visibility half a mile dropping. Altimeter setting 29.83. Wind from the northwest at 5. Over. Ouch. Report me in L.A., will you? See you in 15 minutes. Over, pal. Will do. Midland Radio calling L.A. L.A. Mercury Airlines. You hear anything, Dave? Yep, just now, Hank. I'll bring them in here in about 13.30. Good. Now, if you can just pick up that lost metal patient, we'll give you a merit badge. Patient? Oh, yeah. There's no weather for a sick man. What's wrong with him? His hands. Hands? Yeah. He's a strangler. I sat there staring into the thick, muggy night. Chris might be alone with a killer, and I couldn't go to her because of an SOS I'd been waiting for all these months. Chris only a mile away. The heavy stuff outside seemed to crawl in the room as we waited. Not talking, just smoking and listening. I knew any minute the plane might call, but I wasn't thinking of planes now. I wanted that phone to ring. I had to know about Chris. Yes, sir? Uh, operator, how about my phone? My, my my phone, is it fixed yet? I told you I'd let you know, sir. Well, what about the sheriff? The sheriff? Oh, yes, sir. Is the line still busy? Well, break in on him. He's talking to Harry Waller. I can't just bust in. Well, cut in on him, operator. It's important. Uh, well, all right, but he's going to be sore. Sheriff Grove? Get off this line, operator. Can't you see I'm talking? I'm very sorry, sir. I tried to tell him. Sheriff, this is Dave Cawthon. I, I don't to... care who this is. You ain't got no cause to be buttoning. Sheriff, I'm in trouble. I, I've got to have some help fast. There was a man here, Sheriff. What about him? Well, I think it's the strangler they're looking for. Uh, Clinton? He there now? 
No, that's just it. He's gone to the house and Chris is there alone. Mm. How do you know he was a strangler? Well, with the way he acted. And his hands. He tore my state telephone book in half. <laughs> now, son, just cause a man strong enough to do that don't mean he's a criminal. Well, he, he is the strangler and my wife is alone. You've got to do something, Sheriff. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I'll take a run over there. Oh, thanks a lot, Sheriff. Right away, huh? Uh, sure. But don't you worry now, son. I'll be there in half an hour. Half an hour? That'll be too late. Well, Sonny, my old bus only goes so... But, Sheriff, a half an hour, he could be there now. Hmm. Uh, meantime, why don't you call Lon Miller? Operator, would you get me Lon Miller? Uh, but Mr. Miller's on your circuit, sir. What are you talking about? His line is out of order, the same as yours. Mercury 535 calling Midland. Come in, Midland. Midland to 535. Pull up. Pull up, 535. Execute missed approach immediately. Mercury 535 to Midland. Low frequency radio is out. Unable to locate outer marker. Over. 535. Pull up fast. Pull her up. Pull her up fast. The ship just missed the shack by a few feet. The open windows rattled and papers were wild all over the place. An airliner full of people hovering only a field's length from me. And Chris, a mile away. And suddenly, a blip showed up on the radar. He was close. Mercury 535, going Midland Radio. That was 1,500 feet. Ready for landing instructions. Fuel almost out. Over. Midland to 535. Make a 90-degree turn to your right. Acknowledge. 535 to Midland. 90 degrees to the right. Roger. Over. Midland to 535. We have a target at five miles southwest of the field. Take a heading of 040 degrees and remain at 1,500 feet. Over. 535 to Midland. Holding at 1,500 feet. Over. 535 still with you. You'll have to take him by the hand, Daddy. Visibility zero. Over. All right, your 535. You're approaching now at 12. Chris. The guy's waiting, Dave. Uh, we're... Uh, into 12, five, approaching at... 535, calling Midland. Wait. 535, calling Midland. Lane. For Pete's sake, come Midland. on. Midland. 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 Dink, answer me. Is, is Chris okay? Come on now, operator. Huh? 5-3-5. Turn to a heading now to the left of 3-0-0 degrees. A left turn. 3-0-0 degrees. And descend to 800 feet. Over. 5-3-5. Descending to 800 feet. 5-3-5. You're now at one half miles. Expect to intercept the glide path. In half a minute. Let's go, Pappy. Keep talking. Over. Sorry, Dave. 535. You're now one quarter of a mile from touchdown. Set your flaps before intercepting the glide path. You're now approaching the glide path. Your heading should be 300 degrees. 
Adjust your rate of descent to 600 feet per minute. 535, you are now on the glide path. Glide path is very good. You're tracking on the center of the runway. Here he comes. You're on the center line. You're on the glide path. Approach is very good. 535. Touchdown in three seconds. Center line very good. Glide path very good. Continue approach. Sweetheart, a little more, a little more. You're on the glide path. You're on the glide path. You're on the ground. Take over visually. Over and out. Now give me that phone, Dink. Operator. Operator. Yes, sir. Operator, what happened? I told the other gentleman the whole thing, sir. What? What? And your phone has been fixed, but I can't get any answer. Well, you must not have been trying. Did you, did I've you try? I've been trying for pity's sake. Maybe your wife ain't there. Are you crazy? Of course she's there. I couldn't see five feet in front of me, but I knew I was going to Chris, and I could have done that blindfolded. The blood was pumping in my head and pictures straight through the fog curtain. Chris with dark bruises on her throat. Chris with her mouth going slack. Chris. Chris. There was a light on. I saw it in the dim outline of the house and then I was on the porch. Right through the door. She was standing with her back to me by the table and moving slowly around the end of it by the strangler. He had Chris's scarf in his hands. And that's all I saw as I rushed at him. And yet, something about him. I was scared. It's all right, baby. Oh, darling. I wanted you here so much in the excitement, I forgot he could hurt you. What did you say? I said in the... Excitement? Yeah. I guess that's what it was, all right. That's what you wanted. Wasn't it, Dave? No, honey, that's... What I thought I wanted. I'll call the hospital. Suspense. You've been listening to Run Faster, written especially for suspense by Lois Landauer. is produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson. 
Heard in tonight's story were Jimmy Blaine, Jimsy Summers, Bill Lipton, Roger DeCoven, Bob Reddick, Ted Pavel, and Guy Rep. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Sound patterns by Walter Otto. Technical direction by Fred Cusick. This is Stuart Metz speaking. Listen again next week when we return with The Silver Shoe, written by Robert Reddick. Another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense.